Amen. Thank you guys so much for leading us in worship this morning. If you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, as we frequently say, just look there in the pew in front of you. There's one of these. That's handy that it was right here this morning. And uh, that, these are the Bibles that the church has bought, so we have something if you didn't bring anything. If you don't have a Bible, either here or at home, please take this. It's our gift to you. Um, we would love you to take it, but not just to take it, but to read it. These are God's words uh, to us, and so we think they are incredibly important for life as a follower of Jesus. So please uh, take that. Uh, the passage that we're looking at this morning in that Bible will be on page 827, and, uh, and we will read uh, those verses in just a minute, but I want to ask you first, how many of you have ever seen a sign at a beach saying, swim at your own risk? We can raise our hands. Excellent. Good. All right. How many of you have seen that sign and said, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to go swim anyway. Anybody? Yeah. Most of us do that. We see swim at your own risk, and we just say, mm, I'm not going to listen to that. Whatever the warnings are, whatever the reasons are, I want to have fun in the ocean, so I'm just going to go swim. Most of us do that. However, I think if that sign gave us a little bit more information, some of us may be a little bit more hesitant. For example, if you saw that same sign that said swim at your own risk, but then you saw a little subtext underneath it that said this, Swim at your own risk. Beware. This beach is a breeding ground for very hungry, very aggressive bull sharks. I think most of us would not go anywhere near the water. I think most of us would listen to that warning because there is not only a real risk, but there's a real chance that if we get in that water, we're not coming back out. And so we listen to that warning. Our passage this morning, I think, is a whole lot more like that second sign. You see, in, in, uh, in what Nathan covered last week, we heard Jesus with uh, having some interactions that were, that were not the best of interactions with the high priests and the elders in Jerusalem. And Jesus has already given two parables of warning to those who are rejecting him as the Messiah. And I believe the, the passage that we're looking at this morning is, is not only the warning but it's a warning that explains the consequences of rejecting Jesus as King and Messiah. Well, let's read uh, from God's Word this morning. And if you would, if you're willing and able, you don't have to, but if you're willing and able, would you stand as, uh, as we read God's Word together? This is what God's Word says, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry 
And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those, who were invite, those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to be the Messiah who lived a perfect life, who died a death on our behalf, and who was raised again on the third day. Father, we thank you for this text that we have before us this morning, and we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to see and understand what we have before us. And Father, maybe we will, may we be warned and encouraged by your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, before we look at the main point, I just want to remind us quickly of the audience that Jesus is speaking to here as he gives this parable as a warning. His disciples would have been there. His disciples would have heard everything that he is saying. But this parable is very specifically directed at the chief priests and the elders who are there, who are opposing Jesus. And this parable is a serious warning to them about their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. But obviously what is written for them, what was said to them is also for us. And so uh, the main point of our text this morning is actually the, the title that you see there. And it's for us as well as for them. And that is reject King Jesus at your own risk. Reject the King, the Messiah God has sent at our own risk and to our own parable. Now there's another positive side to that, but you're going to have to wait until we get to that part in the text. But as we look at it, we're going to look at this passage and there's going to, it's a story, it's a parable, so we're going to treat it like a story and a parable and we're going to look, first we're going to set the scene with the king and the feast Second, we're going to look at Act 1. We're going to call that the first rejection. Then we're going to look at Act 2, which is going to be the second rejection. And then finally, as we reflect on this passage, we're going to ask ourselves four questions. Four questions. But first, let's set the scene. The king and the feast. Look again at verses 1 and 2 with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now remember, this is a, a parable, and this is something that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. 
So that means that whatever we are looking at here, it's not if we're looking for exact one-to-one things about the kingdom of heaven and this parable, we're going to be confused. So we need to make sure we're focusing on the main point here, and that's uh, the rejection of the king. And if we, we could get into the weeds, and maybe we'll get into the weeds a little bit, but we need to make sure we keep that main point in our mind as we look through it. But it is the kingdom of heaven that is compared to this king who is giving a feast for his son. Now the king, as the king is in a lot of Jesus' parables, that is referring to the Lord. And we need to remember that the king, the Lord, the king in this story is a king. Now you and I don't have a lot of experience with kings. We live under a very different set of governmental circumstances than the people here. But the people here who would have heard this would have heard about a king, and that would have put a whole different set of politicians in their mind than what you and I would think of. This is a king, and when a king says something, you do it. When a king invites you to something, you go to it. And in fact, if you want a couple of examples of what people who would have been hearing this parable for the first time thought of when they thought of kings, we'll just go a little bit earlier in the book of Matthew, and and you can think about King Herod. Or maybe later, and you can think of Pilate, who was the governor at the time. Or, or maybe you can go uh, just in through the rest of the books of the Bible and the Gospels and think of Caesar Augustus. This is what we are thinking about. We're thinking about a king. So for us, as we think about today, and we think about getting invited to a, a feast of some kind by a politician that we know or that we're around, it would actually not be all that weird of a thing for us to say no to something like that. But what we're looking at today, what we're going to see is that refusing a king's invitation is a dangerous thing to do. So the king is a king, and he represents the Lord in this passage. But then we have the feast. This is a wedding feast that the king is preparing for his son. Now, if we think of wedding feasts today, weddings are big parties that we go to. They're very big parties, but I, honestly, our parties today have lost a little something when it comes to parties. In the first century, they knew how to throw a celebration. In fact, even for common people, a wedding feast might have lasted much more than an afternoon, but could have possibly lasted for a few days. This is a, a feast for a king's son. So we're going to see some details about what that's like in just a minute. But we need to know, first of all, this is a a massive feast, a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. This is the party of all parties. In fact, if you wanted uh, just a a little comparison, if you think about the first Lord of the Rings movie, that Fellowship of the Ring, and that party that Bilbo throws for his birthday, that's probably a little bit more than what uh, about what we're talking about here. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, you need to at least go and watch that first part so you can see that party and see what I mean. In fact, one character calls it a party of special magnificence. This is what we're looking at. This is the scene that has been set for us. Now let's look at Act 1, the first rejection. Look at verse 3 with me. And he sent, the king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. 
So what we're, we've kind of, Jesus has stepped into the story and something has already happened. These, these guests who have come have already been invited once. This is a second invitation that they are receiving. This was actually kind of a, 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 just something that happened back then. You only went to a wedding if you had been invited twice. And it's actually, if we were to think about it, it's not all that different. If you go, get invited to a wedding, first you get to save the date and then you get the actual invitation. So not all that far removed from what we experience today. They've gotten to save the day. Now they are formally invited, but they would not come. But they would not come. They are rejecting the king's invitation. But we see in verse 4, the king is patient. This is where Jesus sets this king. He sets God apart from some of the rulers that we've already seen in the book of Matthew and the rest of the Gospels. If you think about how King Herod or maybe Caesar Augustus or Pilate would have reacted to something like this, there probably wouldn't have been patience and a second invitation. But this king is patient. And so he, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Jesus is telling a story of a king who is not only patient, but he's persuasive. He wants those who have been invited to come, and he describes for them the abundance of the feast that is set before them. Oxen, he says that he has slaughtered his oxen, not just his ox. If you think about slaughtering a whole cow and how much food that would provide, oxen, multiple, there is an abundance of food, but also fat calves, a delicacy, and the quality and the enjoyment of what this feast would be was described here for us. This is, again, a party like no other that no one would have had many invitations to in their life. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So the king is patient with them. And he's persuasive to them and describes to them what they are invited to. Now, I want to I pause here for just a second. Because, honestly, for those of us who are believers, and even if you're in, in the room now and you're not a believer, this, we could look at this, we could look at the description of what Jesus is comparing to the kingdom of heaven, and we can be wondering, that, is Jesus saying that that this is what life following him is going to be like? And many of you who have been believers for a very long time might be saying, Will, this is not what my life of following Jesus for 15, 20, 30, 40 years has, has looked like. And so that is not what Jesus is. Jesus is not describing the life here and now. In fact, if you want to see what life here and now as a follower of Jesus is going to look like, First of all, you can ask those who've been following Jesus for a long time who are sitting next to you. But the other thing, you need to go back to chapter 10. And you need to realize what Jesus said to his followers about what following him in this life, in the here and now, would look like. Friends, brothers, and sisters, following Jesus is not a picnic. Not yet. We have something of this now because we know Jesus. We have heard the gospel. We've heard of the love that God has for us. We have the stories of scripture and the promises given that for those who are sinners who put their faith in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins and a restored relationship with the Father. But there are many ways in which we will not experience that until Christ comes back or until we see him after we fall asleep in the sleep of death. 
until we see him face to face, the fullness of what Jesus is describing here is something we will not experience until then. And so for, for those of you here and, and listening, if you hear of a church or, or a pastor or someone or even Nathan and I falling, falling down and starting to teach you that you know, following Christ is going to mean your life is going to be like this feast every day from here and then, you don't need to listen to that. What you need to hear is, yes, it is going to be a challenge. It is going to be hard. There are going to be sufferings and pains here and now. But one day, one day, we will see Jesus face to face. And one day, every single bit of the comparison of this abundant and amazing feast will be ours. But that is not now. That is a hope that we have to come. Well, back, back to the text, back to what we are looking at. So the king persuades those who are invited to, to come to his feast, and he, and he tells them all that they can expect. And what we see next, we see the first rejection. And in that first rejection in verses 5 and 6, we see two motivations for rejection. Look again at verse 5 with me. Here's the first motivation. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. This first uh, rejection we'll call apathy. The people who hear the invitation of the king, they simply do not care. They have other things that are more pressing in their lives. They have their, their farms. They have their businesses. They have the regular in and outs of life. They have no need or no desire to be a part of the king and his feast. The second we see in verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The second motivation for rejection is antagonism, hatred for the king. Hatred for the king. They hear the invitation, but they hate the king. They hate the party of uh, the wedding feast, they hate everything about the king, and so they, they do not want it, and they hate it enough to mistreat and kill the servants of the king. And as for us to take note here, that this, as Jesus is saying, uh, this particular part of this story, this is the exact antagonism that he is facing, and in a few days in Matthew and the story is going to lead him straight to the cross antagonism towards the king and towards his son and towards this celebration that has been offered. And, and one of the things that we need to note as we look at this is just the how just absolutely insane it is that these people are rejecting. It's supposed to not make sense to us. We see what the king has offered to them and yet they are rejecting it. It shouldn't make sense. The king is offering literally what been, have been in that time for any regular person in the city, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, a party and a feast like they would have never been invited to ever again. And so some of them think, oh, I don't need it, and some of them hate it. It ought not to make sense to us that these people are rejecting this in either way. And yet they do. And finally, we see the consequence of this first rejection. Verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed 
those murderers and burned their city. They rejected this king and his invitation to their own risk and their own peril. And they received justice for what they had done. Let's move on to Act 2, the second rejection. Verse 8, after the, uh, those who have rejected the king in his first invitation, verse 8 says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. What Jesus is describing here is the results of what will happen since the Jews have rejected him and that they will continue to reject him. And that is that the invitation to be a part of the kingdom is at some point going to go beyond the national boundaries and the national ethnicity of Israel. And it's going to go out to the whole world. That is something that has been hinted at at Matthew up until this point and something that will be made very clear at the end of Matthew when Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All nations. Jesus is hinting here at the fact that when the Jews reject the good news of the gospel, when they reject Jesus as Messiah, when they reject the kingdom, the message is going to go out. In fact, we see this frequently in Acts with the Apostle Paul. He goes first to the synagogues. He's rejected at the synagogues and takes the message out to the Gentiles. And so we see the king in this parable. He is going to have the feast. And there will be a celebration of his son. And his wedding hall will be filled. Verse 10, and those servants went out again into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. That, that both bad and good is a little bit difficult as we think about this. So there's, there's two ways that we can think about it. Um, I'll tell you the two ways. I'll tell you which one I think is best, but then you guys can read it and decide for yourself. All right. The first there, both bad and good brought in, just kind of refers to the wheat and the tares that we heard about in an earlier passage. That the kingdom invitation goes out to all, and some come in who are sheep, some come in who are wolves, some come in who are wheat, some come in who are tares. That's one of the ways to think about it. And if we think about it, that is completely true. Many of you who have been a part of this church for a very long time with grief can remember some who are a part of us, but then who have abandoned and not just abandoned this church but abandoned the faith so that's one way of understanding it and there's a there's another way and I actually lean towards this this second way but again you read it and you you figure it out on your own the second way that I think this is talking about is it refers to the state in which the invitation reaches people and that is this that the invitation of the gospel goes out to all both in an earthly sense, morally good and morally bad. It comes to all, no matter what state you are in, the invitation is given. These who are invited did not have to clean themselves up to receive the invitation of the gospel. They didn't have to become all of a sudden morally upright citizens in order to receive the invitation. And so the, this 
as a, as a gospel call to all, both good and bad alike. I think, I think that is what we're looking at here. But again, you, uh, you look at that and you uh, decide, and you can come back and talk to me or Nathan about it later. But that is how the, uh, the king fills his wedding hall. And then in, in verse 11, we see the king, he obviously doesn't know who's been invited because everybody who he did invite didn't come. So he comes into the wedding hall because he wants to see who's at his, at his, fest, has his feast for his son. And so he goes and looks around and then he finds what I call an underdressed fellow. He comes in and he he sees a man who had no wedding garment. Now, that's rather strange language for us, uh, but I think it's a whole lot less strange than you may think. In fact, where are my kids? The kids can prove this to me. I've got a couple of kids in here. Hi, guys. All right, uh, kids, how many of you guys have been to a wedding? Couple? All right, none. Okay, a couple. Jackson's there. Isaiah's there. Awesome. All right, how many of you kids were allowed to go to the wedding in your pajamas? None. Okay, all right. Easy. When we go to a wedding today, we're expected to put on some wedding clothes. That's kind of what we're talking about here. And in fact, what we see here in, in this uh, rejection that we see is a little bit, in fact, we'll call it arrogance. Because think about this. If you were invited to a wedding and you got, you got the save the date and then you had the invitation and then you received the invitation and on it, it said black tie event. If you showed up in basketball shorts and a t-shirt with cut-off sleeves, you would get sent to the door. You would get sent to the door because at that point, you have completely ignored the instructions that the bride and groom have given to you in order to celebrate their day. And in fact, not only have you ignored it, but you've shown them an insult by not listening to it. That is what we have here. We have someone who has come into the wedding feast and has completely ignored the, the customs, has completely ignored what the king would expect for someone to come in to the feast of his son. He has ignored it. He has disrespected the king. He wanted the feast. He wanted the provisions. He really had no concern for the king and his son and for his desires and his wishes. And so the king confronts him and said to him, friend, how do you get in here without a wedding garment? And this is why we can say that this man had no regard for the king. He was speechless. You know, if he could have said, I didn't know, I'm sorry, we think Jesus would have probably put that in the story. But he did not. He was speechless because he knew he had nothing to say. His mouth had been stopped. This is the, the third motivation for rejection, the arrogance. I want the party, but I could care less for the king and his son. I'm going to come and be here by my own rules and by my own way. And again, we see the consequences for that rejection. The king said, then said to then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Take this wicked attendee to my feast for my son and bind him. Make sure that he cannot come back and put him out where he cannot enjoy this feast at all. 
And in that place where he will be, he will be full of sorrow and anger and bitterness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the consequences for rejecting the king and his invitation. And then Jesus gives a final word in verse 14 as he closes this parable. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are, there are a lot of ways that we could, we could stumble over this, and there's a lot of uh, discussion among lots of people about what exactly Jesus means when it talks about many are called, but few are chosen. I think there's some ways that we can all agree on it, and here they are. Many are called, like we said before, the gospel is a universal, universal message. It is for all regardless of age, nationality, tribe, tongue, language, good and bad alike, those who are followers of Christ have been told, go and spread the good news. You don't need to pick and choose who you're telling it to. You just need to go and tell it. Many are called. Few are chosen. Very simply, we can say this, not all who hear the message of the gospel will respond to it. Not all who hear the message of the gospel will respond to it with faith and repentance. And that whole chosen language, I, I know we can struggle with that, and I know some of you do struggle with, with the idea of being chosen by God and with election, but can I at least encourage you? We can talk more about the ins and outs of that at a later time, but I want to I encourage you who are, who are believers and who specifically have family or friends in your life that you feel are so far gone, they are so just removed from responding to the gospel that you, you are desperate and you don't know how you can actually bring the gospel to them and they respond. Well, let me encourage you. The fact that it says few are chosen means that the responding to the gospel is not done in a vacuum, but God is instrumental into it. And so, brothers and sisters, if you have family or friends that you are desperately concerned with, that you have tried over and over and over again to share the good news with them and they have not responded, you have someone who you can go to who can help you and who can help that person. You have a God who loves you and who will hear your prayer when you are praying for the salvation of your loved ones and your family. And it is not like that God, when he hears your prayer, says, I can't do anything about your prayer. No, we have a God who is sovereign in salvation. And so, brothers or sisters, continue to share the good news of the gospel with those whom you love and continue to pray to the one who can open their hearts to hear the gospel, who can soften them and prepare them for the good news, and who is the one who can turn their hearts towards Jesus in faith and repentance. You are not alone in this effort to take the gospel to those whom you know and love. And if you're going somewhere where you don't even know anyone you love, no, you are not alone in bringing the good news of salvation to those who need to hear it. God, through his Holy Spirit, works in the hearts of those to respond. So be encouraged and pray. Be encouraged and bring your loved ones by name before the Father, because He is the one who saves. 
And just very quickly, if you want not just to be the only one praying, come to the prayer meeting next week, 4 o'clock, right in this room. One of the things that we always do, I think we've always done, I don't think we've forgotten it once, but we lift up names together. We lift up names of those who we know and love or who we, God has put in our lives, and we pray for them. We pray for their salvation. So brothers and sisters, if you have people who you care about, who you want prayed for, for their salvation, come to that prayer meeting and we will pray for them. Many are called, but few are chosen. Very quickly, let's close with, with four questions. Four questions. The first question we have. Church family, brothers and sisters, are we willing servants? Are you a willing servant? Now, there's a character in this parable that has kind of slipped under the radar the whole time, and that is those servants. But if we, if we look at those servants and then we think about uh, who in God's kingdom really compares to those servants, it's, first of all, we could think of the prophets. We could think of the people who God chose to go and call his people back to him. And how are they treated? Exactly like the parable says, some were mistreated, some were ignored, some were even killed. But it is more than just the prophets. It is us now. It is the disciples then, and it is us now. God could use any method that he wanted in order to bring the good news to those who need to hear it. But what has he chosen? He's chosen broken, sinful vessels like you and me who have called. I don't know why God chose us to do it, but he did. He's chosen us, and he said, you have responded to the good news of salvation. You are a part of the feast. Go and tell other people about it. We are the servants. The disciples were the servants. And so my question is, are we willing servants? Are we willing servants who are ready to go across the street and to start a relationship with our neighbors who we know are lost? Are we willing to get even further out of our comfort zone and maybe go to a dark place in Hampton where we know sin is rampant and show the love of Christ to that dark neighborhood? Or maybe have some of us been called to be a willing servant to do exactly what Jesus said a couple of passages before, to leave family, homes, nations, and lands and go to where the gospel has not been proclaimed. I don't know what God has called you to, but it is one of those. I need to hear that just as much as you all do. Are we willing servants? Second question. If you are not a follower of Christ, friend, this morning, how are you rejecting King Jesus? Are you apathetic towards him? Do you hear the message that you are a sinner and a rebel against a holy God and that you desperately need salvation and you just, I don't need that. That's just, that's, that's stuff that I don't have to worry about. That's probably not even real. And do you just go about your own business? Do you just go about your own life, not giving a single thought or concern to eternal things? friend, you were rejecting King Jesus at your own risk. My second question to you is this. Friend, do you understand 
the consequences of rejecting King Jesus? Do you understand the consequences? We see just a little bit of those consequences described here in this parable. We see destruction in verse 7. Later we see cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you were to look at the rest of the book of Matthew, what we're talking about here is a place called hell, and hell specifically is mentioned eight times in Matthew, all on the lips of Jesus. It's described in Matthew 7 and 25 as being told to depart from Jesus, told to depart from the king and from his presence. Here and in Matthew 8 and in Matthew 25, it's described as the outer darkness. In Matthew 3, 5, 7, 13, and 18 and 25, it's described as fire, unquenchable fire, eternal, and the hell of fire, eternal fire. In all these different ways, it's described as destruction. Here, Matthew 7, Matthew 10, and it's described as a place where there is weeping, great sorrow, but also gnashing of teeth, which is actually an Old Testament term that's always used of the wicked towards God and his righteousness and his people. Friend, I, uh, some pastors don't want to scare you. I want to scare you. If you are not a believer in Jesus, that is what awaits you. If you are rejecting King Jesus, that is what awaits you after death. There is no hope for you. And I, I do mean to scare because that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And in fact, in all the times that you see in the book of Matthew and throughout the rest of the Gospels, when this place of punishment, this place of eternal punishment is described, it's always in the context of a warning, don't go there. Don't go there. That's what you deserve. But there's a way of escape. You deserve that because of your sin. You deserve that because you are rejecting King Jesus. But stop rejecting Jesus. He is the one who lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he died on the cross to pay for all of your sin. Even the sin of you right now rejecting him. He paid for that. And he died. But then he rose again and showed that he was more powerful than sin. He was more powerful than death. And he is offering to you this, this wonderful promise of hope for all of eternity. Stop rejecting him. You are rejecting him to your own sure risk and peril. Stop. I beg of you. Stop rejecting King Jesus. And then the last Question for all of us in this room, whether we're a believer or unbeliever alike, do we understand the hope of the gospel? Do we understand that though we are great sinners, Jesus is a great Savior? Do we understand that even for those who are rejecting Jesus now, there's, there's hope to be forgiven and if you think, I've rejected Jesus for too long, there's no way there's hope for me. Can I give you just an example here? Here in Matthew, we see Jesus 
is talking specifically to chief priests and elders. Those are the people who are rejecting him. Those are the people who are very much the ones who are going to be instrumental in putting him on the cross. Then go to Acts chapter 6, verse 7 and see some of the priests were people who obeyed and came to faith in Christ. There is hope for all, for forgiveness of sins and to being brought into a right relationship with the God who we have rejected and whom we have sinned against. Instead of being God's enemies, like we see in Romans 5, we are now his friends through faith and trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you want a description. Again, it's hard now, but we have a sure hope for all of eternity. And we read it earlier, and I'm going to read it to you again. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Another way we could say it is the end of the hymn that we are about to sing. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Friend, don't reject the king. Submit to him. And submit to him knowing the hope that you have in him. Let's pray.